Hi and welcome along to an NUFC Matters special with me, Steve Wraith, and I'm joined today by Malcolm MacDonald and John Gibson, and we're going to look back today on uh, Malcolm's wonderful England career and some very special games there. And uh, as I'm not the man who, uh, who who is the expert on these matters, I, I've read about them, of course, in uh, many of these books that the guys have done together. And I've I've seen the clips on, on YouTube, but uh, I was only in my pram when these games were uh, taking place. So the man who's going to take us through this journey is John. Uh, go, uh, hi, lads. How are you doing? Good. Nice to see you, fellas. Great stuff. John, over to you, mate. Where, where are you going to start? Yeah, I'm going to start with a highlight because I always think you should go in big time right from the start. And the highlight has got to be uh, when Malcolm set a record at Wembley, goal-scoring record, of scoring five goals, which still stands. A magical moment. And I was privileged enough to be up in the bird's nest in the press box at the particular game. It was a... As Malcolm well knows, the European uh, qualifying game, so competitive game against Cyprus. The end result was uh, England 5, Cyprus 0, and Malcolm scored all the five goals. Um, I mean, a special uh, thing for you, particularly, Malcolm. Can you take us to the build-up, mate, in the match itself? Yeah. Um... <clears throat> Well, Don Revy um, had been appointed the manager some four games before this particular match. Um, and uh, where I'd been in, uh, been a regular in Alf, Alf Ramsey's squad, not always a regular in the team, but I'd been a regular since 72. And um, uh, uh, Revy left me out for, the, for his first three games and they struggled to score goals. And there was a massive clamour in the press um, that, uh, and, and it was actually naming me um, as, the, as the guy that he should um, select to, uh, um, to overcome this goal scoring problem. And, um, and I was the highest goal scorer in the country at the time. And uh, so um, he, he did select me, um, but this was the, the game before Cyprus. And and so yeah, West Germany. it was West Germany, yeah. Um, yeah. And this was their first game as world champions. Uh, their, their previous game had been the World Cup final of '74, and um, and so I arrived at the hotel on the Sunday night, West Park Lodge in um, Hertfordshire, and. Uh, Having checked in at reception, I then went through to the lounge where Dom Revy was sat. And he always had a, an entourage all around him. Um, uh, and, uh, and so um, I went into the room and I, and I uh, said, uh, Malcolm McDonald reporting. Uh, um, I said, uh, I, I've got no injuries from the game yesterday. And Dom Revy... He looked up, looked at me, and he said, I don't want you here. I thought, oh, what a start this is. He said, I feel you've been foisted upon me by the press. And so, he said, if you don't score, I won't pick you again. And I thought that was a little bit on the strong side. Um, but that it could have worried a lot of players but i always try and look on the bright side of things and i thought well at least i know i'm playing i don't have to wait um until the team's announced he's pretty much told me yeah. that i'm going to be starting the game um and so i was able to sort of get my head right and um, work on my finishing um in training um, and all with this target set on on Wednesday night, and um, and so we played um, and we started against West Germany. Midway through the first half, Colin Bell scored from about twelve yards, um, made it one nil, and then uh, and it was that at half time, and then um, 
we got into the second half and in all honesty we were absolutely murdering the world champions we were so outplaying them um, there was one incident where the ball was played just beyond Beckenbauer and I turned and was going and Beckenbauer literally just jumped on me and dragged me to the ground um, uh, and you know these days of course he would have been sent off but uh, he wasn't even booked then um, and it was about 15 minutes from the end of the game and the ball was in the inside right position just outside of the um, German penalty area um, and Mick Shannon was he was fouled free kick was given and as he was getting up off the ground Alan Ball went round his outside and so Mick in a kneeling position just nudged the ball into into Alan Ball's path um, uh, and uh, with his knee and Bawley just first time and um, and it was a great cross that uh, came right the way over um, to the far post it sort of uh, um, it beat Seth Meyer the goalkeeper it went beyond Beckenbauer and there was me on the far post and I nodded it in from about three or four yards thank you very much and oh, well I was absolutely delighted as you can well imagine um, you know and, and and with, with, with Bawley, I, I knew what he was going to do because I always remember him. Um, he, he, once, um, he once said to, to a, a, a one young player, he said, um, now he said, uh, uh, just to let you know how I am as a player, he said, if the ball comes to me, when the ball comes to me, he said, make your run. He said, because I'm, I might well give it to you with the first touch. He said, but if I don't give it to you with the first touch, just change direction and make another run because it will definitely come with my next touch. He said, because, you see, I've never had a third touch in my life. <laughs> Some statement. He didn't, he didn't you know, need it, Malcolm. <laughs> he didn't need it. No, if it doesn't come with me first touch, it will definitely come with me second, he said. Because I've never had a third touch in my life. Uh, you know, some players take three and four and five touches just to get it under control. Um, anyway, which is which uh, is awful for a striker, Malcolm, isn't it? Awful for a striker if it takes two well, touches. Yes, it is. But with Bawley, you knew that when the, the the pass was just in front of him from from Mick Shannon when he when he needed. Um, and, uh, and and I knew Bawley was going to clip it straight away. He wasn't going to dilly dally or or look to take anybody on. It was just oh, get it over into the danger area, and I finished it off. And that's how the game finished two 0 We've beaten um, the world champions, and not just beaten them, but we, it was a two 0 hammering really because we completely outplayed them. So anyway, we're in the dressing room, and and it's buzzing. And uh, you know, and everybody's absolutely well pleased. And uh, Don Revy walked in, and he went across to the goalkeeper Peter Shilton. He said, "Well played, Peter." Shook him by the hand, and then he went to the right back. Well played, uh, Colin, and shook him by the hand. Well played to the left back and the and the four and the five and the six. And he continued round, um, got to the eight, who was next to me, Mick Shannon, and he shook him by the hand. And then he walked past me, never said a word, never shook my hand, completely ignored me, shook hands with the 10, and then the 11, and walked out of the dressing room. And I just sat there and I thought, what on earth is going on here? So I thought, well, I scored, so he's got to pick me for the next game. Well, that was in the October or November of 74 and the next game wasn't until uh, March or April of I think it was April of 75 and and this happened to be the Cyprus game and so uh, uh, I reported down at the hotel West Lodge Park in Hertfordshire and I uh, checked in at reception and went, went through to the lounge and uh, said to Revy, um, Malcolm McDonald reporting, I said, I've got no injuries from the game yesterday. 
and he said, the same applies as last time. If you don't score, I'll never pick you again. And I thought, oh, well, this is becoming pretty monotonous now. Um, and, and so over dinner that evening, um, having kept totally quiet, I kept it entirely to myself for the West German game. Um, I, I sat having dinner with Borley and, uh, and I thought, I'm going to tell him. So I told Borley what had, got, what had been going on. And, and when I finished, and, and his face, it was, uh, there was a look of incredulity on it. And, uh, and, it, and it, he listened. And, and, and when I finished telling him the story, he said, you leave it with me. No, he didn't actually. He said, you leave it with me. And <laughs> he was the right little squeaker was Bory. And, and, uh, and so I said, all right. So, um, so I just set about my training and um, uh, 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 my finishing, working on that and, uh, and knowing that I, I was playing again. And, um, and so uh, how it worked on the Wednesday, um, prior to leaving the hotel for the, the Wembley Stadium, um, we had trained in the morning, we had had a bit of lunch, um, and then we went to bed for, for a couple of hours, and then we got up and we had a team meeting, and that's when maybe named the team, but I, of course, had been told by him that I would be playing. And so uh, uh, at the end of the team meeting, oh, and he'd come up with this dossier. He kept giving us these dossiers before each match. And so he had told us on the Sunday evening, we had to read through these dossiers um, and, and soak all the information up. And there, there was about... 20 Cypriot names um, on, on this dossier with a full rundown to each individual. And I didn't recognize anything that was on there, nothing at all. And, and to be honest, what was being said, it was, it was all a bit sketchy and patchy. Um, and I, I, I got the feeling that it, that it was pretty much just made up made up stuff um, because um, Cy Cyprus um, at the time it was, it was it had had a bit of a civil war and so it, they, they were sort of the, the country the, the island was separated um, between the Greek Cypriots and the Turkish Cypriots um, I know in the north of, uh, of, um, of Cyprus there, there were tanks on the on the streets and what have you so it was a very difficult time for them um, but anyway so, <clears throat> um, so we, we got to the ground and on the team sheet there wasn't a single name from the dossier that was up that appeared on the team sheet and so we were pretty sure it all been made up it was all a load of fun anyway so um, so having sat through this team talk of Rebids, which didn't really make a great deal of sense. Um, and it was more about Cyprus than how we should play. Um, and, and he never sort of really got round to that. So we sort of knew that we had to, to make it up for ourselves. Anyway, at the end of that team talk, we then had to go and get our bags from our rooms and get onto the bus and travel down to Wembley. And, um, and and as everybody was departing the meeting room, Baldy said, Mel, over here. Um, and so as I went over, he then said, Huddy, over here to Alan Hudson. And then Mick Shannon was going, Mick, Mick, over here. And Baldy told the two lads, Mick Shannon and Alan Hudson, what Revy had been doing and saying to me. And they both looked and went, oh, that's out of order. So Bawley said, yeah, he said, now I've got a question for you. What's the goal scoring record for England? 
and we said, uh, don't know, haven't got a clue, don't know. So he said, well, I can tell you, in 1938 at Windsor Park in Belfast, England beat Ireland 5-0 and Willie Hall scored all five. He said, tonight, this man, pointing to me, is going to break that record and we're going to make him six goals. Are you up for it? And they went, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, we're up for it. And so uh, I, I, it was quite a moment because I, I've got these three absolutely brilliant, great players, Mick Shannon, Alan Hudson, and World Cup winner, Alan Ball. And they're just intending to go out there and make me goals. What more could one ask? And so uh, um, off we went. Uh, got on the bus, got down to uh, Wembley, and out we went. And it was uh, about, after about 15, 16, 17 minutes, um, we had a free kick out in the left wing, um, some 30 yards from the corner flag, and Alan Hudson took it, swung it in beautifully. And I, and I was coming in on the far post, and I shoved Dave Watson, the centre half, out the way, and got me and got my head to it, and um, in it went, and that made it one nil. Great, terrific. Ball has come running across the pitch to me, and he's gone. That's your first. He said, "You've only got five more to go." And I went, "All oh, right, Paul, thanks very much." So. Um, the game restarted and, um, and a bit later, uh, Mick Shannon did a little bit of magic um, on the dead ball line um, and knocked the ball back. And I and I volleyed that into the far post. That made it 2-0. And Ballie's come running across and he's come, that's your second. He said, you've got four more to go. So uh, half time came and we were out for the second half. And Kevin Keegan did a little bit of magic this time on um, on, on the left-hand side, and, and he knocked a, across um, a, a lovely little ball, and I, and I literally dived onto that and headed that one in. And that made it 3-0, and ball is run across, and he's gone, that's your first hat-trick. Now, he says, you go for your second hat-trick. So we're 3-0 up, and... Uh, uh, and, and we are absolutely in total control of the game, has to be said. And, um, and a substitution was made, and Dave Thomas, uh, County Durham lad, um, but uh, he was playing for Queen's Park Rangers. Um, he came on, terrific crosser of the ball, and Borley knew it. And so Borley sort of worked his way into the inside right position and just started feeding Dave Thomas um, down the flanks in behind the fullback. And Dave Thomas, the first cross he hit over was absolutely magnificent. And so I got right up above the centre half and headed that into the far top corner. And Borley's come running across. That's, yeah, that's the one, yes. Yeah, centre-half try, overhead kick it, can you believe? Um, and uh, and that went flying in, 4-0 four, four it made it. And so ball has come running across and he's gone, that's your fourth, he said. You've got two more to go. Come on, just two more. Loads of time. Um, and then, um, and then an um, Dave Thomas knocked another ball in and that was... Uh, uh, Oh, great ball, eluded everybody. And, uh, um, and, I, and I just literally nod, nodded that um, in. And uh, I sort of ducked down and, and headed it in. And um, that made it five mil. Ballers come running across and he said, right, you've got five. You've equaled the record. Now you go for your last goal this evening, he said. And, and that's the one that will break the record. As it so happened, I did score again, but it was disallowed for somebody else being offside. Um, and um, and then uh, uh, um, I hit the post. It didn't half hurt. Um, and then um, and then the, the the 
the final whistle went and we we had beaten Cyprus 5-0, I'd scored all five and, 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 uh, and I've had people say to me, yeah, but it was only against Cyprus, wasn't it? And my, my point to them is that nobody else scored on the night. Nobody else at all. Um, and uh, anyway, so we were in the penalty area of the, of the Cypriots at the very far end of the tunnel and we were shaking hands with the Cypriots. Um, and, and at the far end, above the tunnel, was was a small sort of like four foot, five foot square um, electric scoreboard that had sort of just been keeping the tally um, of the scoreline going um, through the evening. And, and I just happened to look up at it and it and it went blank. And I carried on shaking Cypriot hands. Um, and, and then I noticed that the board had lit up. But this time it was different to what it had been um, running through the game. And this time it said, congratulations, Supermac 5, Cyprus 0. And I just looked at it for a few seconds and I thought, wow, that's all my boyhood dreams come true in one evening. Um, and, and, and it was all, oh, it was quite a moment, just stood there. Then reality struck and I thought, where are you? And, and I looked around and there was Don Rebbe over by the far, far corner um, and walking down the track, trench coat on, hands in his pockets, head down, and he was marching back towards the tunnel. And, and so we, we got ourselves back into the dressing room and we were all congratulating each other and, um, and what have you. And Revy walked in and he went across and he shook hands with a goalkeeper, Peter Shield, and he shook hands then with a Colin Todd right back and David Nish the left back and uh, congratulated each and every one of them uh, and continued round four, five, six, seven, shook hands with Mick Shannon next to me, walked past me, never said a word, never shook my hand, nothing. It was as if I didn't exist. And so <laughs> I never played at Wembley again after that. Um, I, I played in, in, in a, um, one and a half away matches following that, but uh, um, I knew that was the, um, the end of, of, of my time with Don Revy. Um, and then he did the dirty, of course, and uh, walked out in the FA. But, uh, um, <clears throat> but Ron Greenwood then came in. <clears throat> and Ron Greenwood, he, I, I, I got the feeling that he wasn't my kind of football um, fan, if you like. Uh, that uh, he was very much the the the, uh, um, the do it by the uh, by the tactics book, you know. So he wanted the sort of Jeff Burst type figure and what have you. And so uh, uh, um, I never played for England again, and yet, uh, and yet I was the sort of top goal scorer um, in in, my, in the following years um, each time, and, uh, uh, and and never got a look in. So sad days, uh, those, but I enjoyed it when I was there. I really did. And what, there is one person that I haven't mentioned, and that was Sir Alf Ramsey. I thought he was brilliant absolutely brilliant um wonderful wonderful man and he was such a a great enthusiast with each and every player and he just wanted to to help get the very best out of each individual um and and he was he was a true gent absolute true gent as well can, can we pick up from there? Yes, because, the, you know, in, uh, Malcolm's England career, it began with a debut in May 72, 3-0 win over Wales when Malcolm was only 22 and 
knew, yeah. relatively knew at Newcastle, right through to his final appearance in, in 75, which is a 1-1 draw with Poland, which we'll be going into in a few moments. But it left Malcolm with a career record of 14 caps and six goals, which is quite a return, goals per game return. Uh, started, as Malcolm hinted at there, with Alf Ramsey, taking us through the caretaker uh, reign of Joe Murphy onto Don Revy and then eventually, as as Malcolm said, Ron Greenwood came in. But can we go back to Ramsey, Malcolm, because this was your England breakthrough. Mm. This was the legendary England manager of all time, having won the World Cup in 1966 and became, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey as a result of that. And um, a, a different type of manager to a lot, Malcolm. Uh, a stickler, very precise, knew yeah. what he wanted. And I remember a fun story you tell me once, uh, a team meeting involving uh, Bobby Moore and another with Jeff Hurst. But can you elaborate on those, mate? Um, yeah. On the Bobby Moore one, <clears throat> we were playing Italy at Wembley, and we we had um, we had the team talk um, prior to the match late afternoon before we got on the bus to travel to Wembley, <clears throat> and and it was a it, it was a big it, it was a big sort of social room, and so just it in the middle there was a plinth and they put a desk and a couple of chairs there for Alf to sit at so he was slightly raised and 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 for us just in front of this plinth was, was a whole raft of chairs which we were sat on and then it, it was sort of big spaces all around us and um and to one side it was, it was, as we were sat looking at Alf, it was, it was um, uh, off, off to our left-hand side. There were huge curtains, floor to ceiling, right the way across, and behind were big glass French doors. Right in the middle, there was a little chink at the very top of the curtains, and there was a, a, a raft of sunlight coming in and as Alf was speaking now what people have what everybody's got to realize is that Alf was incredibly precise he went into full and absolute detail never left anything out he never had notes either he just did it all from the top of his head and he would give and he would give this incredible rundown it, and everything was in order he would give give the rundown on the team generally that we were due to play against and then he would go to the individuals and he would give us the rundown on the goalkeeper all his strengths his weaknesses the kind of game that he that he had you know whether he came for crosses and stuff like that and then he would go to the right back and then he would go to the left back and then he would go to the center halves and he would give us a full detailed rundown on every individual. Um, we knew what the team, how the team played, but now we were getting how every individual played. Strengths, weaknesses, all the while with him. And, and his team talks always lasted precisely two hours. Never a minute 59 never two hours and a minute it was always precisely two hours how he did it i i could never work out it's always precise and and so he is in the middle of telling us all about italy and their individual players and he's talking about riva and rivera the great midfield players and he's just waxing lyrical about how about what great players they were and by heavens yes they were 
and, and there has been this shaft of sunlight coming through the afternoon sun shining through this V in the curtains at the very top. And it's just this narrow shaft of sunlight and it is right on the side of Bobby Moore's face and he sat in the middle of everybody. And so he can't move left or right. And, and this shaft of sunlight is just constantly on his cheek. And Alf is in the middle of a sentence and all of a sudden we hear <laughs> and we've all looked to the center where the noise has come from and Moro has fallen asleep. And, and he's sort of sneezing at, and, and Alf, he's just stopped in mid-sentence. He's looked up, sees the situation and he said, um, Emlyn, to Emlyn Hughes, Emlyn, would you mind giving Robert a nudge, please? And so Emlyn's gone, Moro, Moro, wake up. And Moro, he's come to realise the situation. And he's looked around and he's gone, oh, my word. He said, oh, Alf, I am so dreadfully sorry. I can't apologise enough, he said. He said, it's this shaft of sunlight, the, the warmth on, on my face, and, and, I've, and I've just nodded off. And Alf has let Moro completely finish whatever it was that he wanted to say. And Moro, having finished, Alf has looked at him and has said, Robert, I am not concerned um, that you fell asleep, he said, because I understand you have heard all of this 107 times before. Now, would you mind just concentrating this one final time? And we all looked around and went, is that giving Moro the job? And it was. Moro never played again. That was his last game against Italy. It was his 108th cap. And that was it. And he was never selected again. And it was just the way that Alf would put it over to people. And he just, and having said what he had to say, he just carried on. Now, whether it was pre-planned for him to, that, that this was going to be Moro's, last game we don't know because Alf would never say he would never go into detail only about the football would he go into detail and Moro that was it that was his final game and uh, uh, what a great uh, player great skipper um, and a lovely man as well I have to say he always went out of his way did Moro whenever, whenever a new guy came into the England squad He'd always go and welcome him specially and take him around and sort of show him how how it all went. And he would always make the new guy feel very welcome and very much a part of, of the whole unit. Uh, yeah, fabulous fella. So sorry that he's no longer with us. Um, yeah, he, he was he was The interesting special. thing, Malcolm... Malcolm, what you were saying about uh, Alfie in the way he said to uh, Moro there, you know, will you please concentrate for the one last time? Remember the expression you told me that he said to uh, Jeff Hurst out in the car park? No, oh, right. <laughs> um, I, um, I was doing a television programme um, you know the Anne Robinson program, um, yeah, and, and yeah, and, and there was there was a, a whole group of. Um, uh, it was called the Weakest Link. Thanks, my wife's just That's reminded cool, me. Yeah. It was called the Weakest Link, and there was a number of international footballers on this particular one. Um, all bar one person. And that was Ken Walsenholm, 
who was, of course, the commentator of the England versus West Germany World Cup final back in 1966 and, and became ultra famous for that wonderful line. They think it's all over. It is now when Hursting got the fourth goal in and his third. Um, and, and so there was a, we were sort of some way through the program and there was a technical hitch. And uh, so we were asked if we if we go to the green room and we were told you may be there some time. We don't we, it could take us quite a while to um, to get this um, glitch sorted out. So we were all sat having a cup of tea or coffee in the green room. And um, and so we just started relaying little stories that of, of things that had happened to us all during our careers. And, and Jeff Hurst, he said, um, he said, look, he said, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you something. He said, um, he said, but I've, I've, I've never told anybody before. He said, but, but we're all sort of international players here. He said, um, he said, just so long as it doesn't go out of this room. Well, um, uh, uh, I'm sure that he won't mind me telling him because it it just expressed Alf Ramsey to an absolute T. It, it expressed him perfectly. Um, and the story was that um, England, a couple of days before the World Cup final, they, Alf Ramsey said to them, now, gentlemen, the FA have got this big do organised at, um, at a big hotel in Wayfair. Now, uh, we don't know what's going to happen on Saturday afternoon. So, do you want on the Saturday night to go um, to this do... Um, or, or would you prefer not to and, and what else would you like to do? And so um, they all sort of got into a bit of a huddle and they went and mutter, mutter, mutter. Um, and Bobby Moore, the skipper, he said, um, he said, no, we thought about it, Alf. And he said, look, we've, we've all been together now for over six weeks. And without wives and our girlfriends, what we'd like, whether we win or we lose, we'd just like to have a bit of peaceful time and, and with the wives and girlfriends um, all together. So Al said, fine, no problem. He said, uh, we'll, have a, we'll have a lovely night here at, that, at this hotel um, and, uh, and all the wives and the girlfriends, of course, um, will come and join us straight from Wembley. Um, and so that was it. And, and Alf, he, uh, he would never go to the FA or whoever, whichever body, and say the players have decided. It was always Alf that decided. He would take all, always the blame. And, he's, and so he went and he said, um, I have decided that the players, they need to just have a little bit of privacy after the game, a good meal, a couple of beers maybe, um, and... and time of their wives and girlfriends, so they won't be coming on Saturday night to your shindig. And so that's exactly what the players have done. And of course, it was made an even greater night because of the fact that they won the World Cup 4-2. Um, you know, and it was a most incredible and thrilling game. And and so afterwards, they all went back to the hotel and, they, and, they, and the wives and the girlfriends came and joined them and... Um, uh, and, and so there, the hotel was just occupied solely by the England squad and, and, and what have you. And, um, and they had this lovely time, had a meal and what have you, and a few drinks. And the following morning, um, there were a few who were a bit slow to get up, but uh, Jeff Hurst 
and his wife, they have things to do. They have people to go and see. So, so um, they got up fairly early-ish in the morning on, on the Sunday morning, and they went down and they had breakfast, um, and they had left their bags at reception. And having had breakfast, and there was one or two other players and their wives there, and and so Jeff and his wife, they said, right, see you, folks. We've We've got family to go and see and, and, and spend a bit of time with. And so they went out and Jeff, being the gentleman, um, saw his wife into the passenger seat, shut the door and was walking back around the car. And he saw Alf come out of the hotel door and was just stood there outside taking a good breath of morning air enjoying the sunshine and so jeff waved at him and he said see you next match then alf and alf looked across and said if selected <laughs> absolutely. And that was, that, absolutely that was out that was out and it was his hat trick hero of the day bernie it wasn't going to sway him too much um and, and we all the players just absolutely loved him I, I always remember there was a there was a dinner um in a big hotel in london um organized for alf ramsey and he had selected in total this was after he was england manager um, during his reign as England manager, he had selected a total of 112 players. How many of those do you think turned up at the dinner? What would you reckon? It's well, yeah, virtually it all of them, I'm suspecting. Well, you're right, John. Yeah, of the 112 players he had selected, there were 108 and yeah and the other four wouldn't go because because they had fallen out with him you know they had disagreed with him and what have you but that's an a, an amazing percentage of, of loyalty to the man um I'm, i i think it would have been, I an should, I should, been a dinner for dom revy i was about to say i can think of somebody that would have been missing on dom revy for not as bad uh, if we could move on from the Ramsey thing, Mal, uh, to you had the interim caretaker manager of England, oh, John Mercer. John, sorry, can I just interrupt? Can I just tell you about um, about the demise of Alf Ramsey and how it happened? Go on. Well, um, having won the World Cup, he he he'd obviously got these World Cup players, all of different ages. And so, sort of one by one, they started to drop out George Cohen and Ray Wilson and what have you. And by the time that we were getting to 1974, there were just, there were just two of that 1966 side remaining. And they were the two youngsters from the side Martin Peters and Alan Ball and we went over to Portugal um, to play Portugal in Lisbon and at the Stadio de Luce um, the real stadium of light that is um, that's the home of Benfica um, that Alf put together a size and he, he left a huge number of other players out of it as well. And he and he had Martin Peters and Alan Ball as the two experienced players, and he picked youngsters. And he said to us before the game, this is going to be the new England. And and I looked around and what I realized was I was the fourth most experienced guy in this in the whole setup. And I had, and I had, and just got sort of, you know, I hadn't reached double figures in caps 
um, at that stage. And, it, and, the, and there was Alan Ball and Martin Peters, who I've mentioned. Then there was Mick Shannon, who had a few more caps than me. Then it was me. And then came Kevin Keegan. And then there was, and, and, and brought in was Trevor Brooking and, uh, uh, um, oh, the whole host, whole host. Phil Parks, I think, played in goal. Um, it, and so out came this wonderfully exciting young England team. And this was going to be the new look. And so we played against um, Portugal, who were a hell of a side then. And this young side absolutely murdered them, really murdered them. And, and, and the crazy thing was that the goal, their goalkeeper, he was making, he must have made a dozen unbelievable saves. Um, and we hit the woodwork about five times. Uh, and it was just one of those days. Uh, and, and despite how well we had played, we just couldn't stick the ball in the net. And, and so it finished nil-nil. And after that game, believe it or not, they sacked Alf Ramsey. And none of us could believe it because this was the dawning of a new era. The team had played absolutely fantastically. And they decided to, to boot him. And I, I, and I think that it, 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 must have, it must have saddened Alf so, so much that this next side of his wasn't going to be given the the opportunity to really flourish and then of course um uh so th through the summer um england always went away malcolm after the ramsey um reign came to an end we had the short period with a caretaker manager joe mercer and one of the big things that emerged from the mercer time as manager was the famous kevin keegan situation abroad when he was asleep on the baggage roundabout uh, it was a massive story at the time can you fill us in on it mate? yeah yeah it, it was um prior to playing yugoslavia we had arrived in Bel belgrade airport we had flown um we had flown from i believe um sofia in bulgaria and we had had a late night um prior and uh, we come. We've flown in on Bulgarian Airlines, and Kevin Keegan had um, fallen asleep on the plane. We got got onto it uh, very early in the morning, and he sort of got to his seat, strapped himself in, and and went to sleep. And the only real activity was there. Were, there were four of us. Um, who who um, would play cribbage, um, and that was uh, Mick Shannon, Martin Peters, myself, and Monty Fresco, the Daily Mirror cameraman, if you remember, John, um, who was a lovely, yeah, lovely guy. Um, and uh, and and so we've been playing a bit of cribbage, um, and uh, and it was it was a a, a nothing event this flight. Um, in, into Belgrade, um, nothing untoward whatsoever, and uh, we and so in um, in the Belgrade airport, the, there was a conveyor belt that we had been told our luggage was due to come in on, and and Kevin he laid himself down on this. Um, conveyor belt which, which was still wasn't moving um, and he went back to sleep and so we were all just sort of hanging around and waiting and waiting and this was something that we had to get used to because when we went to um, sort of the, the Soviet countries and, um, and Yugoslavia it was it wasn't exactly a part of them, but it, but there was a connection. It, it was more uh, communist than anything else, and um, 
and and so they all just kept the England side waiting and waiting and waiting and um, and and so we just kept our mouths shut and and, and got used to it and uh, and the next thing because behind the conveyor belt there was there was like a it was like a, a big wooden hut um, and out of there came seriously armed um, police guards seriously armed machine guns pistols and they came out and they just grabbed Kevin Keegan who had been asleep off the conveyor belt and dragged him um, backwards into the um, into this police hut that it turned out to be and and the door slammed and we we went whoa what's going on and so we we got to to like the the more senior members of the party like the FA uh, there was a number of the FA there the international committee and and what have you um, and and we said, hey, come on, you, you need to get something done about this. And then we started to hear cries coming from inside this hut. And yelps, yells and yelps. Um, and there were muffled sounds, you know, that were that kind of muffled sound, followed by yelps. And so we're, we're trying to get the, the attention of, of, of the FA members um, who actually scarpered. They scarpered out the airport um, uh, and they couldn't get out there quick enough, really. And, uh, and I presume somebody was left behind to, to, to collect the, all their bags for them, but they just got out of this situation. And so um, we were as a group of, of young men, we were seriously considering and discussing going over the conveyor belt and uh, um, and forcing our way into this um, in, into this police hut. Um, and 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 so as we started to sort of uh, gather on the verge of crossing the conveyor belt, all of a sudden the door opened and four policemen came out and just pointed machine guns straight at us. So we had had second thoughts and, uh, um, and what to do, what to do. And in the end, the, the, the baggage thing, the carousel, that started to move and, 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 and our and bags started to come through, but we were more, in, more more wanting to get Kevin out of this situation, um, and, and and there was just nothing at all. And in the end, um, somebody must have phoned the English embassy because because a guy came from the embassy and he he instructed us and. Um, where he realized that we were being somewhat defiant towards him, he pleaded with us, you must leave the, the airport. So he got us to leave the airport. We weren't happy about going to the hotel. So um, he said, right, he instructed the bus to take us to the English embassy. Um, and then later we, we went to the hotel. Um, uh, um, but then we went back again to the English embassy. And finally, um, the, the embassy staff had persuaded the police to let Kevin go. And, and he, he came and joined us at the embassy. And by heavens, what a mess his face was. Serious, serious mess. Um, and, and so we then went to the hotel the uh, the fellow from the embassy he came with us and he sat us down in a, in a room and and he gave us if you like um 
a sort of uh, a team talk on international affairs and how it works and what we mustn't do and what we must do. Um, and the one thing was that we realised not to make a, a fuss about this whilst we remained in Yugoslavia. Um, and, and, and still the FA members, they, they just weren't to be seen at all. Joe Mercer, he was the manager, but Joe wasn't a well man, uh, not well at all. Um, and, and he lived in, in constant uh, pain and, and had to take painkillers and what have you. And so he, Joe couldn't get that involved with it all, really. And, um, and he was a lovely man, Joe, really was a great enthusiast. Um, and uh, I would have loved to have met him as a manager uh, when he had been younger. Um, but uh, but he, he, he had to make the decisions, bless him. Um, but he was sort of passing it over, really, to the embassy people. And, uh, and Kevin, having come back in such a dreadful state, we said, right, there is no way we are playing on Wednesday night. No way are we facing Yugoslavia after after what's happened, um, unless there is a major, major apology from them, personally, to Kevin. And, and again, the fellow from the embassy said, I don't think that's advisable. He said, um, we have to deal in mysterious ways over here. And what I suggest is that you get out on the pitch, you play the game, and go and beat the bastards. He said, that will be your best answer. And as it so happens, we went out on the pitch and we did beat the bastards. Um, we beat them 3-2. And, uh, uh, um, uh, and we weren't sure on leaving the airport the next day that Kevin was going to get through. Uh, we really weren't sure that he was going to be allowed to leave the country. So again, the guy from the embassy, he was there and he made sure that each and every one of us uh, got through customs and, 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 the, uh, and all the checks and what have you. And we got onto the plane and, and this time it was the England plane, the British Airways plane. And, uh, and we just, we, we, we got this feel because everywhere we went, um, uh, every summer, we went in this same plane that British Airways provided us, but um, they have they have been denied the right to land in both uh, in, in both uh, Bulgaria. I think um, it might have been Russia as well, and and in Yugoslavia. And so, uh, um, with that. We got the impression because the, the, the British Airways plane had, um, had, had been barred from landing um, and therefore we had to take the, the, the other national carriers, um, their planes. We felt the whole thing was a setup and that it was planned that they were going to do something like this. And we could never prove it, of course, um, not, not in a in a thousand years, but uh, the suspicion has remained always um, that this thing was a complete setup in the first place. Uh, and uh, Ma Malcolm, Malcolm. Malia, Malia, England caps, all came, all came with Newcastle United, although you were transferred to Arsenal. Uh, a top top uh, club in England in itself, and had two fabulous seasons with them before um, you, the knee injury came along and ruined everything. Um, but your feeling, perhaps, was that the move to Arsenal coincided with one Greenwood becoming the England manager, and as you've already hinted, uh, he wasn't your sort of. Uh, he wasn't your sort of manager, and that spelled effectively the end of a, a very eventful England career. Yeah, um, 
I, I'd, I'd had an absolute uh, uh, fabulous last two seasons at Newcastle in terms of um, goals scored. And then I went to Arsenal, and in two seasons, I scored um, 61 goals spread over those two seasons and was just completely and utterly ignored, John. There was, um, there, there, there wasn't a hint of, of possibility that I might get into the England squad with Ron Greenwood. It was, it was just a totally closed um, situation to me. Um, and, and as I said earlier on, um, I, I, I just felt that, that he wanted um, the more technical players, whereas I played very much off the cuff. I played it as I saw it um, uh, and, and would sort of go out of team, outside of team tactics if, if I could find a goal-scoring opportunity. He wanted it all kept, um, all nicely wrapped and parceled, and I wasn't that kind of a person, wasn't that kind of a player. And so, um, say la vie. Uh, that was uh, that was pretty much it. And uh, and I met Ron Greenwood, um, but it was something that he never ever wanted to discuss. So I never pushed the matter with him really. From our point of view, Malcolm, uh, a career finished far too early, what, 29 years of age. Mm -hmm. um, but we treasure, we treasure your time in Newcastle, your goal-scoring records, two Wembley Cup appearances and all the England caps with us. So we'll claim you completely, mate, as ours and uh, be very grateful that that happened. Smashing to yeah. remember such wonderful times, mate. Well, thanks, John. Um, what I would say is that uh, that I would I would say um, thank you. A, a number of managers helped me in my career. Um, Harry Haslam at Tunbridge, then Bobby Robson at Fulham, and and the guys that I'm mentioning. There, there was one thing uh, um, very similar amongst all of them. Uh, Harry Haslam followed um, then by Alex Stock and then um, then came Joe Harvey all four of those managers they let me go out and play the way I saw it they didn't tie me down um, at all um, and they I think they just saw in me that that, that my speed was um, which was the main asset and, it, and, and, and speed, of course, can just destroy defences. And so they let me go and perfect that to the very best that I could. Um, and I thank them all for it. But of course, once you come up with somebody like um, Ron Greenwood, it doesn't work um, with, with those that do it by the book. Um, they want players who play by the book. But thanks to those four guys who gave me all the opportunity in the world, and, and I, and I thoroughly enjoyed working under them, with them, uh, um, and and listening to what they had to say, and it improved my game tremendously. And I've thoroughly enjoyed listening to those recollections of Malcolm's England career today. John, just want to thank you for your preparation as always. Uh, great to have uh, you on board with this. And uh, Malcolm, thanks for sharing your memories, some which I'd heard before and some which I hadn't. But uh, as always, an absolute pleasure to listen to the pair of you talk about football in general. All right. Well, thank you, Steve. And, and John, thanks very much um, indeed. Um, been uh, my pleasure over the years, Malcolm. Great stuff. Take care, lads. Thanks pleasure. very much. Take care right. now. Take Bye. Care Bye. 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 Bye.